Good morning, folks, and thank you for tuning in to The Global Current, Seton Hall's School Diplomacy Podcast. Each week, we break down a new topic in global affairs and have a conversation with students to analyze different perspectives on the subject. This is your host, Eric Bunce. Today, we're discussing the Global Climate Summit. But before diving into it, let's check in with this week's news briefer, Drew Starbuck, who will update us on news headlines from around the globe. Drew? Thank you, Eric. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, countries send aid to ease India's oxygen emergency. International efforts are underway to help India as the country suffers critical oxygen shortages amid a devastating surge in COVID cases. The United Kingdom has begun sending ventilators and oxygen con- concentrator devices along with fellow EU members. The U.S. said it would provide raw materials for vaccines that had previously been under export controls. India's capital, Delhi, has extended its lockdown on as overcrowded hospitals continue to turn patients away. India reported over 350,000 more cases in the 24 hours leading up to May 1st and another 2,500 deaths. However, the true figures are thought to be much higher. The European Super League curtailed. The football world was thrown into uproar recently with the announcement of the European Super League by 12 owners of the most powerful teams in football, breaking away to form their own league. The 12 sides, six from England and three from both Spain and Italy, announced on April 18th that they would be breaking away to form their own Super League in a move that immediately attracted the IR fans. Following fan protests, all six English teams announced within 24 hours that they had revoked their decision to join the league, and they were followed by Atletico Madrid and Inter Milan on April 20th. The Earth Day Climate Summit. U.S. and China aim for new goals. The Biden administration came up with an unequivocal message at the two-day leaders' summit on climate this week, that America is ready to lead the fight against global climate change. At the top, Biden formally pledged America would cut its greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent relative to 2005 levels by 2030, the most ambitious target the U.S. has set to date. And he's pledged 100 percent of America's energy to be carbon free by 2035. The big pledge from Chinese President Xi Jinping is to reduce coal consumption completely between 2026 and 2030. But Xi's announcement was short on specifics and China's overall targets remain unchanged. The U.S. Navy has also fired warning shots at Iranian vessels in the Persian Gulf. And President Biden addresses Congress. President Biden, buoyed by solid approval ratings, presented the American Jobs Plan and American Families Plan. The White House said the proposals would be funded by tax raises on corporations and the wealthiest Americans. The proposal follows the American Rescue Plan, a $1.9 trillion coronavirus stimulus package that included direct checks to most Americans, which Biden signed into law last month. He framed these latest proposals in the context of foreign policy and said the United States was in a competition with China and other countries to win the 21st century. He also called for politicians from both parties to back his plans and said he was willing to work with both sides. Okay, thank you so much, Drew. Now for today's topic. On April 22nd, Earth Day, President Joe Biden hosted a virtual two-day summit of world leaders to address the issue of climate change. Bringing together more than 40 world leaders, including Vladimir Putin of Russia and Xi Jinping of China, the summit reached across geopolitical divides. We have seen global summits before, but not much action on climate change. Will this summit be any different? And what effect could it have? Joining me today to discuss this and more are two of our own Seton Hall Diplomacy students. Our domestic analyst for today is Kristen McGuire, Welcome to the show, Kristen. 
Thank you for having me. No problem. And today's international analyst is Cash Kinsey. Welcome, Cash. Hello, thank you for having me. Okay, it's great to have both of you here. Uh, so I just wanted to start by going back a bit uh, to the issue of climate change and to the lead up to this summit. So, Kristen, let me start with you. Can you just give us a brief overview? I think most of our listeners already have an idea about this, but why are we addressing climate change on an international scale? Why is it such an important issue that we're addressing it through a, a world summit? Sure. So, as you said in the introduction, climate change is an issue that uh, transcends geopolitical divides. It's something that every country in the world has an interest in addressing and it poses an existential threat to every country on this planet. So cooperation is needed, and that's why the summit occurred on Earth Day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and why is climate change such a difficult, if it is in everyone's interest, if it's an international issue, if it's in everyone's interest to address it, why has it been such a difficult issue uh, to tackle? Well, international cooperation on any topic is difficult. There mm -hmm. is the free rider issue where you know, not every country is going to play their part or meet their requirements or their pledges. Um, and that's something that has historically plagued um, addressing climate change. And then just one last question for you, uh, just to set the landscape. Uh, what countries are the world's largest carbon producers, the carbon uh, greenhouse gas? China is the world's largest. All right, Cash, let me turn to you now. Can you give us a, a brief overview of past efforts to address climate change and you know their effectiveness or ineffectiveness in the past we have seen efforts from nations such as china they've stated recently that they were going to begin scaling down their coal industry there's also been various attempts to reforest parts of china that have been desertified due to climate change in the past, at the Paris Accords, there have been commitments to different levels of emission reductions over time, and each nation has made different commitments based on their position in the world. Yeah, and have these past efforts like Paris, uh, they yeah, have they been effective at all? Have they been ambitious, pretty, pretty small? What's their character? It depends on the individual country as to how ambitious each of these Accords mm -hmm. have been. Of course, um, with yeah. Paris, each country had to make a different commitment. Um, for example, Australia made a commitment of reducing its emissions by 26%. Um, but that is different from other countries that made promises to be completely carbon neutral by 2050. And because the agreement was non-binding, it did not enforce that on every country. And different countries have either maintain their promises or have not. Yeah, and going off of the Paris Climate Accords, uh, can you tell us a little bit about previous U.S. policy, particularly under the previous administration, under the Trump administration, uh, towards climate change? Under the Trump administration, we saw a unilateral pulling out of the Paris Accord and a nearly entire neglecting of the climate issue. Um, there have been little efforts at emissions reductions under the Trump administration. And since President Trump gained power, there was little action taken on the climate front. As a whole, 
and the U.S. kind of lost its position as the leader of the climate efforts on the global scale. Okay, and then I want to ask about uh, third world countries, developing countries, and their reaction to climate change. Because as Kristen noted for us, I mean, they're not the main producers of carbon. So how are they reacting to this issue? So different third world countries have taken different perspectives on how this issue is affecting them. As was stated before, third world countries don't necessarily make the biggest impact, but they are usually the ones that are most affected, especially countries that are island countries, because rising sea levels, hurricanes, severe weather events tend to affect them more harshly. Also countries that have more impoverished peoples tend to suffer the effects of climate change more heavily because they can't adapt as easily in their economic status. Um, We saw countries such as India make a statement at the climate summit where they made the point of stating that even though they are high on the global emission scale per country, their per capita emissions are some of the lowest. They rank 21st according to the Union of Concerned Sciences. And they do not emit as much carbon emissions, nearly as much carbon emissions as other countries in the world per capita, and that's per person. Okay, yeah, a little bit of uh, hesitation and resentment there because they're not the largest producers, but they're oftentimes the worst affected by it. Now, could you, or Kristen, I'm not sure if you would want to take this one uh, for either of you. Could you walk us through a little bit of the pre-summit bilateral talks, specifically between the U.S. and China that took place? I can address that one. Prior to the talks, the U.S. climate envoy, John Kerry, met with the Chinese climate envoy in China. Xie Zhenhua was the Chinese climate envoy that they met, and they discussed and made a joint statement for the rest of the world prior to the climate summit. The joint statement was the United States and China are committed to cooperating with each other and with other countries to tackle the climate crisis which must be addressed with the seriousness and urgency that it demands. This was a good sign for the climate ambitions that we have seen set out at the climate summit. And it was prior to China making any commitments, but it did indicate that they wanted to work with the US, which was not something that was seen under the Trump administration where there was a much more combative attitude between the two. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that that was a a much more positive relationship between the two countries than it was seen a couple months earlier when they had just bilateral talks. So it was it was a good shift to see, perhaps. Okay, so let's let's jump right into now to what actually happened at this summit on Earth Day. Um, Yeah, let's start with the big one. What did the U.S. pledge to do, Uh, Kristen? So at the summit on Earth Day, President Biden committed the United States to cutting admissions in half anywhere from 50 to 52 percent from 2005 levels by 2030. He also said that the U.S. will double the amount of money that it offers to developing countries compared to Obama's annual spending in the second half of his presidency. Um, Additionally, he announced the nomination of Rick Spinrad, who will now head the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is the country's premier climate science agency. And this was a big step, especially this announcement, um, symbolically um, to show that the United States is taking on the issue of climate change and wanting to lead the world. Okay, yeah. And of course, this isn't the only, the summit is not the end all be all. Are there other um, actions or, or policies 
from the Biden administration that will also affect climate change? Definitely. Um, climate change was a big issue that President Biden campaigned on. Notably, he rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement, um, which President Trump pulled out of. Um, that agreement was signed under President Obama in December of 2015. He also has created multiple organizations within the executive branch of the government, including the National Climate Task Force. He created the Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Change and appointed John Kerry to this position, the former Secretary of State. And his major infrastructure plan that he just laid out has a heavy focus on combating climate change. He also, more generally speaking, has pledged the United States will be 100% carbon-free, it's energy production by 2035. Okay, of course. And this, yeah, I, we already mentioned it a bit, but how much does this differ from the, the Trump administration re response? As Cash mentioned, the Trump administration heavily downplayed the role of climate change and its effects. Um, there was a large emphasis in the Trump administration of rolling back Obama-era regulations, as I mentioned and Cash mentioned. He pulled out of the U.S. Climate Paris Agreement that was assigned under President Obama. He loosened restrictions. He cut EPA mm -hmm. funding. And he appointed people who were climate deniers, who disagreed with the science behind it. And it very much downplayed this role. And it led the United States to fall behind other countries when it comes to addressing climate change on the global scale. Yeah. And normally I, I try to look for like more nuance in all the stories we do. But it seems to be a pretty clear uh pretty clear break, at least on this issue, maybe not with all issues, but on this issue from the Trump administration, uh, and that the issue of climate change has once again taken uh, central importance uh, uh, in the U.S. government. Would you agree with that? Or Absolutely. Um, at the summit that President Biden hosted, he struck a very, he had a very urgent tone, and so did many of his cabinet members. Um, Biden said that the science is undeniable and that the cost of action keeps mounting. That's a direct quote from him. His director of national intelligence placed climate change at the center of U.S. foreign policy, which is different from the Trump administration. And the special presidential envoy for climate, John Kerry, he said that climate change is an existential threat. It's definitely a pivot away from how Trump dealt with it. And it's building off of Obama policies to place climate change at more of a central role within U.S. foreign policy and domestic policy as well. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Cash. I'm going to head back towards you now. I want to ask you about the other, the other big giant in the room, which was China, the world's largest producer of greenhouse emissions. Uh, what did they commit to do, and, and what were their actions during the summit? So at the summit, the head of the Chinese government. Xi Jinping claimed that China will, quote, strictly limit coal consumption in the next five years and then phase it down in the following five after that. Now, China is currently the world's largest coal consumer, so this was a very impactful statement. However, he did not change their plan to peak their emissions by 2030 and reach carbon neutrality by 2060. They remained committed to that timeline and have not offered any emissions reduction percentage-wise um, commitments at the summit. Okay, so they haven't. Hmm, so they previously had made uh, climate reduction goals, but they haven't modified them much as a result of this summit. Um, what about some other uh, large? 
carbon producers, such as we already mentioned a little bit what India said, but such as India uh, and other countries that are heavily reliant upon fossil fuels. So, right. With India, the prime minister renewed his promise to install 450 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity by 2030, but mm -hmm. he made no new pledges and he made a point of drawing attention to that per capita statistic we talked about earlier by stating we in India are doing our part. He thinks that the people in his country are already doing their part to reduce global emissions. As far as other countries that are heavily reliant on fossil fuels, one of the primary ones that we saw at the summit that was a stark contrast to many of the other commitments made was Australia. Australia refused to commit to a new emissions reduction goal which leaves it at the 26 to 28% reduction agreed to at the Paris Accords. The president in Australia stated, we'll update our long-term emissions reduction strategy for Glasgow. And he is referring to the climate meeting that is going to occur in Glasgow, Scotland in November. It also refused to commit to carbon neutrality by 2050, as many other countries have. Okay, so mm, a lot of these countries that are heavily reliant right now on the use of fossil fuels, which is to be fair, most countries in the world, but some more than others, um, are pretty hesitant to ramp up their, their commitments for probably, presumably economic reasons. Um, all right, what about uh, some, other, some other world players? What about Brazil and what about uh, Russia? So to begin with Russia, Vladimir Putin made a relatively vague statement about how Russia intends to address the climate crisis. He stated that Russia plans to significantly reduce the net accumulated emissions in our country by 2050, but he offered very little specifics and he did not address the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, a major natural gas pipeline that is currently under construction in that area. Additionally, in Brazil, we've seen recently large increases in illegal deforestation of the Amazon in Brazil. President Bolsonaro of Brazil pledges to eliminate illegal deforestation of the Amazon rainforest by 2030. However, this claim was met with extreme skepticism as deforestation massively grew under Bolsonaro's administration. Bolsonaro also committed Brazil to carbon neutrality by 2050 when it comes to energy production, claiming that Elimination of illegal force, illegal deforestation will reduce Brazil's carbon emissions by at least 50%. He also was reaching out to the climate envoy, John Kerry, asking for Brazil to be compensated for the service to the environment that its citizens are doing. He, much like India, believes that his citizens are doing more than other individuals in the rest of the world to combat climate change. He stated specifically that Brazil deserves to be fairly compensated for the environmental services its citizens provide for the planet, which was an indirect request for funding by Bolsonaro. However, these requests are not being met immediately because of hesitation, because essentially the rest of the world does not trust Bolsonaro to actually hold to mm his pledges to prevent the deforestation of the Amazon as it only grew under his administration. And he has offered no assurance for how he would actually meet that goal. Okay, so 
Well, Putin's keeping his cards close to his chest, which is not particularly surprising. Um, but the more interesting story here is Brazil, at least for me, because I know that Brazil, home to most of the Amazon, which I think scientists would call like a, a carbon sink, it's extremely important uh, for maintaining our atmosphere. Uh, and he he's made big commitments, but... He's facing a lot of skepticism, at least from the international community. So we'll see how that plays out. And then, um, well, yeah, let's turn to, to, to the reaction a bit of this summit. Now back to you, Christian. How did U.S. conservatives or uh, Republican leaders, how did they respond to this this climate summit? So U.S. conservatives have responded negatively as they have to most of President Biden's initiatives regarding climate change. He received a lot of backlash for rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, notably, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, called um, this summit, quote, quite the one-two punch, called it toothless requests for our foreign adversaries and maximum pain for American citizens. And he criticized um, some of the initiatives that were put forward and the pledges that were made. Um, saying that Democrats' zeal for imposing costly environmental agendas on our own nation does not seem to be something that our foreign competitors seem to share. So there's definitely heavy skepticism on the part of U.S. conservatives um, and a general pessimistic view all around. Okay. I, I feel like we're repeating ourselves now because we've seen this story before. You know, Obama, Obama helped negotiate the Paris Climate Agreements uh, and then in 2016, uh, Trump withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreements, or in 2017. So uh, what are the chances of preventing that from happening again? What are the chances of getting U.S. conservatives on board? And what do you think needs to be done to do something like that? I would say that one of the main things that is driving U.S. conservatives, despite bipartisan support for action on climate change, um, definitely donations, campaign donations. In the 2017 to 2018 midterm elections, the fossil fuel industry paid at least $359 million for federal campaigns and donations and lobbying, and a sizable portion of this money went to Republicans. So certainly addressing this issue and demonstrating the existential threat that climate change poses to this entire world is something that I think will promote bipartisan cooperation and on a larger scale international cooperation. Okay. Um, well, that kind of speaks for itself. So let's, you know, zoom out. Final question for both of you. Um, what are the chances of this summit really making a difference? Uh, Cash, we'll start with you. I believe this summit has the capacity to make a difference, not necessarily in the enforcement of the specific pledges made at the summit, but more that it reestablishes the U.S. as a leading figure in this fight to help reduce climate change. It also shows that the U.S. and China are working more closely to reduce climate change as they are the two top emitters in the world right now. Additionally, mm. it builds and sets the stage for what will happen in Glasgow in November and what commitments can be made there and possibly more enforcing mechanisms be installed there, whereas now it's just getting a gauge of where every country is and what's going to happen. And right now we see that the U.S. and China are both committed to at least doing something to help fight against this 
their global emissions and help to reduce global emissions. Okay, and Kristen, what do you think? I agree with Cash. I think that this summit was a good starting point and that there's obviously a lot more work to be done. I think it was very symbolic at a bare minimum that this summit brought together 40 major international players and that the United States has shown a more, shown a bigger commitment to leading the world on climate change and taking steps themselves and encouraging other countries to follow suit. And ultimately, as we've said before, climate change is an existential threat. It's not going to wait for international cooperation. The effects of it are going to happen regardless. And countries will ultimately have to work together, whether it's now or later, to address this issue before it becomes an even larger issue and starts having more devastating consequences for geopolitics and the world as a whole. Okay, good. I always love to end it on a happy note, like, you know, certain destruction. Um, no, but but seriously, I, I mean, both of you seem to think that maybe on its own, it's not going to uh, have a huge effect, but it's building up. There's one coming up in Glasgow uh, and there's encouraging signs. So uh, in some ways, this is one of the more happy episodes we've done this season. Uh, and it is does happen to be the last episode this season. So thank you all for, for tuning in. Well, this has been a, a fantastic discussion. Cash, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow Global Current on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not be possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jared Dang, associate producers Jasmine DeLeon and Joaquin Matamis, technical producers Joel Moran and Brittany Segura, and assistant technical producer Jason Marieski. I am your host, Eric Bunce. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.